to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Ann and Nick are talking with Andrew Ward, a freelance journalist based out of Brooklyn, New York, covering the cannabis space for Benzinga, among a number of outlets, and the author of the new book, The Art of Marijuana Etiquette, a sophisticated guide to the high life. We've been really looking forward to chatting with Andrew all about his new venture, as well as his first book, Cannabis Jobs, which was first published in 2019. In addition to his long-form work, Andrew's provided some of the best journalistic coverage on evolving cannabis rules and regulations in all 50 states. We highly encourage all of our listeners to follow Andrew's coverage and to track him down on social at The Kenna Writer. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our conversation with journalist Andrew Ward. Andrew Ward, welcome to The Green Rush. I can't believe we haven't had you on yet. It, it's really great to have you joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, we were debating if I had been on one or not. Or, um, <laughs> like I said, I listened to the podcast enough that I feel like I've been on it, but maybe I haven't. I don't know. We, uh, we got down through the archives after this. But uh, yeah, good, I, que- good I, question to start us off. <laughs> yeah, I feel like even though you, you may not have been on before, you're still a friend of the podcast. So, um, but for for our listeners, um, you know that that may not follow you closely or, or um, you know read all of your stuff on Benzing and Business Insider and among another number of other outlets. Can you uh, just give some uh, background on yourself? Yeah, um, so I've been a freelance cannabis industry writer for about five years now. Um, got in a little bit in a hybrid role, um, starting in journalism and content marketing. Um, coming out of school in 2008, I've been told that I was never going to be able to use my degree to become a journalist or anything in that world. So I started marketing writing, then I got a job. Oh God. Yeah, it was great. It was great. The 2008 was a great time, um, as, as everyone knows. Um, yeah, so I got told that I couldn't do that. So I kind of was like, all right, I'm just going to grab whatever work I can with an ideal of working in the news side and doing interviews and things like that. Um, and thankfully over the last couple of years, they both started building up. I've been able to work with some really great companies. Um, I don't want to name any off of here now, but some of, you know, leading names that you probably know in some of the major markets have been fortunate enough to work with over the last few years on the publication side, like Nick said, you know, high times, Benzinga business insider. Um, I do a little bit of psychedelics covering. I'm always looking to potentially span beyond cannabis, um, possibly beyond writing. Um, but yeah, trying to work in the whole media world side of things. And uh, yeah, just put out my second book called The Art of Marijuana Etiquette. It came out in June. Um, yeah, it's been a blur of, of of a media and writing world over the last five years. It's been great. Did did you, and I remember us talking about this book, um, I don't know, a couple, maybe two years ago at this point. Um, and I guess, tell us about the writing process and did, did COVID help or hurt it? Because was the book written by then and how did that whole process work? I mean, everything was shut down. Like, you know, what, was it easier? Was it harder? Tell us about Uh, that. So the writing process was a lot easier this time around. Um, 
I've always tell people the kind of a joke, but also serious. Don't ever do what I did in the first club. Um, I had no, I, so I completely had an unconventional approach to getting a book. I didn't pitch it. I had a publisher reach out to me and ask me if I wanted to do it. So they were asking. When, and this was cannabis jobs, right? Your first book is cannabis jobs. We'll, and, I, we'll, and we'll have a link to, to every, to all of Andrew's work in our show notes. So don't worry about writing it down. Yeah. Thanks y'all. Appreciate it. Um, no. Yeah. So I bring that up because um, this process was a lot easier because of cannabis jobs. I stupidly said I could write a book in six weeks and don't ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you're a freelancer trying to make money or have, you have a full-time job to work around it as well. It's a terrible idea. Um, it makes for a great story, but a terrible idea. That sounds idea. torture. It wasn't Torturous. great. I adopted a puppy at the time and it definitely <gasps> was my, uh, my only oh, favorite So you had all, all kinds of free time. I too. have anxiety yeah, totally. for you. Oh my I God. mean, okay. she, she turned out to be the saving grace, but yeah, that was not the best decision. But I bring that up because um, afterwards I told my editor, I was like, there's no way in hell we're doing six weeks. He's like, okay, we'll give you six months. We'll, you know, and take your time. And it actually got to work out a lot more. Um, it was a lot more fun. A lot of uh, creative back and forth with the editor, making sure we had the different style. Um, they originally wanted to go in this more sort of grand, um, you know, kind of high etiquette sort of tone of voice. And we tried it for a few months in pre-production and day one, I went to go start the book and I just felt very inauthentic. And I told them, I was like, you know, you can either take back the advance and go hire someone else, or, you know, let me kind of tell it from my approach. And I pitched them was, you know, from my own informed voice of experience, as well as talking to people in the cannabis industry, creating a book that's a little bit more, in that sort of tone, um, you know, bo a book that is still fun, lighthearted, but at the same time is informative um, with some stuff that you wouldn't have thought of in the cannabis space, as well as maybe some stuff to kind of open your eyes, um, mostly around like, you know, the war on drugs and things like that. So um, they took that on great to them. Um, and we wrote the first copy. It was about six months about that. And a big two hurdles came about. Um, and you mentioned uh, the first one, COVID. Um, that came about probably... I don't know. I would say maybe a couple months after we had done the first draft. I forget exactly when, but it had been a little bit. Um, and then another thing that happened probably about halfway into writing the book was that we found out that Lizzie Post had written uh, Higher Etiquette. Which oh, that's why we talked about it. Yeah. Because we had had Lizzie Post on and I think you called me. You're like, hey. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm working on this book. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's all coming back to me. So yeah, so that we kind of had to change everything. Well, we didn't change everything up with the book because of uh, Lizzie. Thankfully, our books were very different. Um, although there is one person on Amazon that wrote that she wrote a way better book than mine and mine is shit. And it, <laughs> the title of it is E. So you think about who that is. I'm not saying it's Lizzie. <laughs> It's it's, <laughs> oh, no. it's, it's she's cool. She no, was, she's, she, yeah. no I to, it totally isn't. But like, I'm, I'm a big. I mean, you've made it now that you've got shit on on exactly. Amazon now. Yeah. Like, congratulations, Thanks. my friend. One, I five five star reviews and one one star saying I'm a hack. So you know, hey, I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll take that low ratio. But no, they, it wasn't it wasn't Lizzie, but she wrote a really good book. And um, so that was actually the first thing we came across was her book was um coming out probably about halfway into it and. I don't know how my publisher didn't know about that. I probably should have researched that too. That's a big drop ball on our part. But um, thankfully we checked out her book and it's really great. Um, but we thought it just had a little bit of a different take. You know, um, there's a little bit more of a refined, a little bit more of an etiquette focus, still really great in-depth stuff. Um, but we thought we were going to be covering different things as well as, you know, the overlap would be 
pretty standard fare sort of thing. So we didn't think it was really mm-hmm. going to be kind of t- t- uh, taken from the creative side. So we re- reconfigured that while doing the first draft. And then, like I said, a couple months after submitting it, uh, COVID came into play. Um, so I didn't hear from the publisher for a couple of months because they've gone through, you know, like a lot of companies, a lot of layoffs, um, a lot of their production was really halted and upended. So I didn't hear from them for a few months. We probably didn't really get to redoing the book for probably about five, six months. I would say after submitting the first draft, and that was probably about a year, year and a half ago now at this point. I think that's the right timeline. Um, basically, we went in there and kind of just revised the book to update for COVID, you know, kind of putting an optimistic spin on it with the hope that, you know, things would be ending soon. But at the same time, here are things to consider in the current time as well as potentially in the future with people being uncomfortable with sharing and things like that. So, you know, we kind of just factored in a little bit of social distance, a little bit of updated tone, basically. Um, uh, Really not de-emphasizing the sharing, though, because I think that's so important to the cannabis community, but more so now kind of at least touching on... Yeah, but at least Jen just touching on saying, you know, like, hey, things could change. We don't really know where things are going to go post-COVID, so... Just, you know, I don't know, walk a finer line for a little bit, you know, play it to the comfort of the room as well as yourself. Right. Uh, And, uh, you know, one of our questions here is what surprised you most in the research for this book? But I'm wondering if it's like all of these curveballs that were thrown at you. But but I guess taking those aside, like in the actual reporting of the book, you know, you are um, a, a legacy cannabis user. So like as someone who is steeped in the industry, I don't think that's a surprise for anyone. Um, no spoilers there. What did you find anything that, that made you this sophisticated cannabis user, like, you know, be like, Oh my God, I had no idea. You know, I, I don't know, maybe I didn't dive deep enough or not, but no, not a ton of things really surprised me. A lot of it was, I guess, coming from hearing all whole different perspectives over the last, you know, at that point, three and a half, four years in the industry. And then, probably 10 or so years of just consuming with friends and other groups of people, you know, you kind of come across a lot of different preferences and a lot of different, you know, taste of things. Um, you know, I think talking to some of the international subjects that always, you know, opens up a little bit, um, Javier, Javier Hase Benzinga, you know, an awesome person. I'm sure everyone listening knows, um, or has at least read his stuff. Yeah. Most people do. He's a good dude. Um, (laughs) yeah, he, he shines some interesting lights about paying bribes in certain countries. Um, and like back home in Argentina, how, you know, you can kind of bribing is kind of understood in certain areas, um, but how, you know, in the U.S., that would be a lot more of a dicey sort of uh, proposition to do, especially as uh, an international tourist or something like that. So that that definitely came up. Um, but I would say the one that caused the most debate, which I was a little surprised on, was tipping. Um it was a, it was a real 50 50 split when it came to tipping on both the illicit and the legal side of the sales. Um, you know, some people were emphatic that you tip your dealer or your bud tender. And some people said that, you know, it's a building cost, you know, it led to some wage dispute arguments with some people. It led to, you know, (laughs) some interesting points, you know, um, I think Melissa Vitale from um, a great PR person in the cannabis and sex space. Um, I think she was the one who mentioned that, um, you know, the, the higher price of for an eighth in New York, you know, you're paying anywhere between 40 and 60 where you could probably buy it for 20, 25 if you went to someone's house. So, you know, the costs were factored in and, you know, it, yeah, it became a real interesting thing where it became like a wage dispute, uh, wage dispute issue a lot more than uh, tipping. Uh, but the answer is 50, 50. Oh, that's so interesting. I 
is not something that I had really thought about on the illicit market, but I definitely know it has been a thing like uh, with all the dispensaries, especially out here in Arizona. You see the, the, the tip jars out there for uh, when you work with them. But wow, that's that is really interesting. Um, yeah, that's interesting to hear, too, because, you know, being in New York, uh, you know, aside from the medical shop or two that I've been into, we really don't have much of a dispensary experience. So I wasn't really sure if there were tip jars readily uh, at different oh, places. Yeah. Yeah. Really? OK. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of the butt tenders that you, that you work with, they'll go really far above and beyond with their, their knowledge on everything. So I think they 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 definitely want to be able to be as helpful as they possibly can to the consumer. And so, you know, when you get into the wage dispute, you know, I think it, it makes sense to to show them that kind of appreciation. Well, I think it's also um, like. I don't know. I, you know, I haven't been to a MedMen in a while, but there's there's one up the street for me here um, in Venice. But we go to a, a local mom and pop uh, shop out here, so I'm I'm always very mindful of the fact they've been here for forever, and like you know, I, I want them to survive, I want them to thrive. So like, it's like my independent bookstore. Like, I want to go to my independent bookstore, not to Amazon or necessarily Barnes and Noble. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but. Well, there is, but whatever. Um, but I, 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 I like that like local aspect of it and, you know, uh, tipping just makes me feel good in that respect. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, especially the bigger shops, I would love to see them paying enough where tipping isn't, you know, so like, you know, if you want to tip great, but you know, these people get paid well enough that that for hard work and going above and beyond is factored in, but especially the mom and pop shops, you know, their margins might be really thin. So, you know, it, it definitely means even more so that, you know, to tip will definitely be, you know, helping out and, you know, hopefully eventually they'll have enough revenue that they could pay better, but, you know, until they can, you know, support the local shops and, you know, support the, the great help uh, at the shop too. That's a win-win. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, so Andrew, I want to shift the, the conversation a little bit and get into more of your, your traditional cannabis coverage that you you do specifically a series that you do with Benzinga that you and I have worked on for a number of stories, but, uh, um, it's your ongoing features where you cover the evolving cannabis markets in, in each state. Um, you know, you cut, co he covers Arizona, California, all of the States there. I think you do a really great job of giving readers a snapshot of what these States look like. Can you tell us, um, about this series, what you're looking for when you're, when you're telling these stories and, you know, anything interesting that you've learned about when, um, investigating these states. Oh yeah. Um, ooh, man, it's, it's kind of a log jam of interesting things. It's kind of, you know, picking and picking and choosing. It's definitely tough. Uh, to kind of go back a little bit just to answer it all. Um, you know, the snapshot series, um, it was another thing kind of, uh, same with the book actually started pre COVID and, uh, was evolving post COVID. So that was probably the first thing that kind of shook the whole series. Um, we didn't really have a format going into it. It was a lot. Benzing at the time was a little bit more open to longer form articles. They still are, but they're a little bit more selective about making sure the need for it is there. And, um, you know, it definitely, uh, I can understand why, because the state profiles, there's so much minute issues that you can find in a state, especially talking to different operators. Uh, originally, we were talking to patients, advocates, lawyers, operators, and we still try to get a diverse view, but also realize that getting such a diverse view has made it hard to get really in depth to any of the problems. So we've really kind of tried to balance that out um, through the series. Um, and that was going on pre-COVID. Then when COVID happened, you know, everything you were seeing, all the concerns of the markets went from, you know, supply chain distribution and, you know, regulations and testing to how are we going to survive? Can we survive? And then a few months later went to, oh my God, we're killing it. We're, you know, an essential business. We're doing great. So you're seeing this whole evolution of the market going on. 
and on a broad macro level, it's exciting because pretty much every state is talking about the same thing. But then once you start to dive into the states, you start to realize the problems and the positives about each state. Um, one of the one of the states that I was really always excited about when I cover these states to uh, talk about is Oklahoma, just because Oklahoma has you know one of the most unique markets. And I think unless you're tuned into the cannabis uh, market, uh, especially on the regulation side, you might not think that a state like Oklahoma is that exciting. But you know they're essentially California's medical law. Uh, laws just amplified and, you know, kind of factoring in the, um, the native population as well. You know, they have their independent world, they have their independent laws, but they're also, there's some connection in there. So it kind of is this really interesting world that I don't think any other U.S. market has. And they've just really kind of opened it up to such a degree that, you know, it's a sink or swim and you're seeing a lot of companies sink. But what's also happening is you're not seeing major players and in getting into the market because there's such, you know, improbability to success and who's going to succeed there. So I always think Oklahoma is one of my favorite ones. Uh, coming away from it, Missouri was another great one. Um, they've got, really? booming, Oh yeah. Missouri's got booming potential, but they also have, um, you know, the same problems a lot in the Midwest has overcoming stigmas, you know, overcoming um, quality of product, you know, isn't always there. Um, but, you know, they're doing it. They're doing really well. Um, the Midwest in general, I think, is just really cool. Um, my biggest takeaway, there's a lot of takeaways to come from it, but is like a, I've, I've learned this from a lot of investors as well as advocates, which makes me believe it's probably a strong tie that a lot of people should have if they don't already do it, is pay attention to the Midwest, uh, especially the states that you wouldn't consider, you know, go beyond Michigan, go beyond Illinois, two very important states, but, you know, look at the ones that you might not consider, like Oklahoma, Missouri, Ohio, a lot of other ones are really starting to take shape. And there's going to be some interesting markets coming out of there as well as some hopefully good, but in the very least interesting laws too. What was it that made Oklahoma tip like that? Exactly. If you just dig into a little bit more in the state, because I don't know that we've done, we interviewed um, the folks at Redbird um, now, probably oh, close to a year ago, I guess. Um, but it, it just give us a deeper dive a little like on that state, because it is so interesting. Um, yeah, I think, you know, uh, one of the things that I, I actually, sorry, I, I don't know all of Oklahoma's backstory, what led them to get there, but I know that the state is just one of those states that really just has a uh, preference for limited government intervention. And I think even their lawmakers have that. Um, and they, that's what they went in. You know, it's, we don't want regulations. We want to see who can sink or swim. We make access, you know, for licensing pretty open, the same with medical conditions. It really is just, you know, if, if the citizens wanted it, we're going to give it to them. And, you know, if you know how to run a business, you can succeed potentially. And if you don't, you might have a bad investment on your hands. And, you know, cannabis might not be this, you know, golden opportunity like you think it is. But for a lot of people, it is. And I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's interesting. Uh, I, I think I think it's a successful market so far. We'll see if it uh, continues on like that. But it's uh, definitely a unique approach. Yeah, it's yeah be... I always. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say, I always found it so interesting that, you know, here, the, uh, cannabis and, and drug policy reform is such a, you know, a, a, a stalwart, like reliable issue for the progressives, but it's really, you know, the state's rights issues um, or, or, or the state's rights appealing to states' rights um, is really how they, you know, we've gone about stitching together this, this legal marketplace. Um, so I don't know, I've always found that to be kind of an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. And I also wonder how much, you know, you, you mentioned Oklahoma and Missouri, how much that's going to play a role in once the South really starts to open up their markets. If they see that that Oklahoma model has worked out really well, will they implement it there? And we'll see a huge boom in those states down there. 
Yeah, it remains to be seen. You know, the South, I mean, every state has its own screwy implementation of cannabis laws, as we've seen. And, you know, the South is, you know, some states like South Carolina are taking pride in trying to pass the most restrictive medical laws. So, you know, they all have different agendas and different goals for it. Um, you know, like you were saying, too, about states' rights issues. Um, some of the big the big reasons why states want to you know legalize cannabis is you know states' rights as comes up, um, social equity uh, and the budget seem to be the three biggest ones. And you know you know, it isn't always this case, but I think you can draw a line pretty clearly around what state drove their motivating factor based around their tax structures. You know the higher tax structures structures, the more emphasis on sh- social equity. You see that they more have a restorative justice tilt on what they tried to uh, pass through in their legalization. Um, other states when it's wide open bills, wide open laws, you know, I think it's more they were a need for money or they wanted to provide that access to more, you know, state rights sort of driven uh, mentality um, or just, you know, fund the market through that sort of combination of it. Um, so it's interesting to see because, you know, I think the social equity is obviously, you know, the right um, moral agenda to it. But um, one of the things that I've been taught from a lot of leaders in the industry is, you know, and they're often the people that advocate for social equity as well is, you know, you're not going to be able to flip people on what's right and wrong. Unfortunately, you're going to be able to flip them on what the business side of it is. So if you show that you make a bunch of citizens happy because they get what they want and you can fund the market and get money to make you look better, it's a win-win. So, you know, even if you believe in social equity, a lot of times you end up seeing, you know, that other push go the other way. So it's interesting. It all kind of takes shape and it's, you know, a very nuanced thing, but I find it, you know, something that's kind of still actively taking shape. That's one that uh, to look out for. Is there, are there any states that stand out to you um, where there, where there, no one really is doing equity right, but is there anyone doing it more right <laughs> than others? Um, so the two that I've heard to get the most recognition is Illinois and uh, potentially New York, if they uh, put the regulations through that, you know, match what they say they're going to do. Um, it looks like they're going to do that. Um, it's still kind of up in the air, you know, um, the last minute hurdles could still kind of trip it up, but it seems like New York is heading in the right direction. Illinois gets a lot of credit for it uh, as well. Um, Illinois' one problem is uh, their taxes. A lot of their products, especially on the adult use side, can reach 40, 41% on uh, on certain prices and potencies and things like that. So while 41% it's- taxes? Yep. Yeah. And you wonder why people stay on the uh, on the illicit side. Um, yeah, yeah. Jesus. So you know you're paying that much money. And I wrote an article about this for Ben Zinga a couple months back, where you know it basically you know it's even people who want social equity, uh, you know, biggest advocates for it. Even some of them are concerned because you look at a state market. It's like, well, we're not going to give it to anyone to buy products. They're not going to want to support social equity if they think of the price tag associated with it. And even if they do support social equity. A lot of people just feasibly don't want to pay 40 extra percent on, you know, their cannabis prices. One, or you can't know, afford it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So why not stick with your, you know, your trusted, you know, under the radar, unlicensed uh, option. So it, it's a big, it's a big jump. But I think Illinois is doing it right. The tax code is going to be, you know, their big trip up. New York is TBD, but it looks like they're incrementally getting there. Um, it's kind of a joke, but it sadly is true. Um, Cuomo seems to pass more friendly legislation when he gets tripped up in more controversy. And today just proved to be more controversy. <laughs> so Yeah, we'll we are recording this on, on August 3rd. Uh, I'm told there was a press conference that was pretty ridiculous. Yep. Um, I didn't get a chance to see it, but... Um, yeah, so yeah, it, it may yeah. take a little bit while for uh, New York cannabis legislation if uh, Cuomo's going to stay in trouble, or maybe he just legalizes it. 
tomorrow. You know, Look over here, guys. <laughs> I didn't do anything. Let's just go pass some cannabis laws. Well, that's the thing about New York politics that, you know, I mean, not to go too deep into it, but, you know, Trump and Cuomo, different parties, but kind of the same mentality where it's like, I say mm-hmm. something dumb, I do something dumb, I get caught doing something awful. I'll divert it or I will offer something that I didn't support recently that you all really want and hope that that kind of shuts it up. And, you know, I, I don't know. It seems like that kind of seems to be both of their strategies. So I don't know. Maybe we oh, get a, maybe we get a friendly that, but, I don't know. Yeah, but I think you're I think you're right there. Yeah. Saving it for his ace in the hole. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> don't, don't you love st- state level politics? That's another thing about <laughs> cannabis that if people are listening to federal is interesting, but pay attention to state level politics because that's where everything gets done. Um, the screwiness in every state for all three of us are in different states of so the screwiness from each one of them alone could make a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, I remember, you know, when it was obviously on the ballot in New Jersey and I'm from New Jersey and like aunts and uncles are like coming out of the woodwork, like calling me being like, I voted like, you know, so it does <laughs> bring about like a, you know, a, a passion in people at the local level yeah. um, because it's so much more meaningful meaningful, um, to know that, you know, they could have a dispensary available to them down the street. So, um, I, I, the, the politics, the local politics (laughs) is very interesting, very screwy, but very interesting. Mm -hmm. And, and Andrew, let's stick on the family thing. How do you talk to your family and, and I guess your friends too, like that you cover cannabis? Are they ever trying to solicit advice for you on like, Hey, what, what should I be getting? Where should I be going? How can I get a job in this space? Oh man, this is a, this has been a 180 in five years. Let me tell you. Um, <laughs> so when I got started in it, it was either my heady friends were just like, cool, that's going to be a fun trip. And I was like, you're not going to get paid for it. I was like, yeah, that's probably going to be it. Um, I used to, co- I used to cover electronic music and it was kind of the same thing. It's like, I'll get paid 400 bucks for this, but I'll get some stuff. So it'll be a fun story. So that was kind of where it started. And then with family, they all thought I was either going to be a drug dealer, get arrested for being a drug dealer or, I don't know, flame out and then have a terrible gap on my resume that I won't be able to explain when I try to get like a traditional industry job. Um, And I was just like, no, I'm going to keep going. Um, And probably about two and a half, three years into it, um, people started realizing they're like, oh, the market's taking off. This is a legit opportunity. I think the- Where do I invest? Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) The first book kind of swayed that. And then- Benzinga and Business Insider definitely is where things got into what you were just saying, Anne. Um, tons of people now start to come out of the woodwork for that. Um, family members and friends that I like, I'm happy to talk to. Um, other <laughs> ones, I like, yeah, I'll give you base level stuff. Um, I, I The big one that I love is LinkedIn because LinkedIn is, it was once a really valuable social media platform. Now it's like, valuable and 95% cesspool. And um, one of the big ones is people from high school coming out of the woodwork when they see the cannabis is in my title. And like, there's this one guy, I won't name him. um, You know, he... Is, was nice enough. We didn't have any problems in high school or anything, but it was like, you know, someone who very clearly would not be speaking to me unless there was some value in their conversation with me now. So every couple of weeks, I'll get a message being like, hey, man, when's this stock rate to invest? Hey, man, will we get federal through? Yeah. And the first couple I got to it, and then um, shout out to Mary Pryor and Canaclusive. I forget if, if it was Mary or Canaclusive, but they sent out a good slide of just professionally friendly ways to say, stop asking me for free work and free advice. And I've now just been going <laughs> through those cycles. And um, I think about three quarters of the way through and he hasn't got the hit yet, but you know, we're, we're still working through it, but uh, yeah, you, you get a little bit unsolicited advice, but the, the, on the more positive side is my dad and I, um, we talk about investment portfolios and um, 
I got him into cannabis and psychedelics a little bit. And uh, now we talk a lot about the market movement and things like that. So uh, it's cool. It's been a great 180. Look at that. Cannabis, bringing fathers and sons together. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you mentioned psychedelics, and that was our next question. It's almost like you have the R script here. Uh, but, you know, th- and this podcast specifically, you know, has has kind of taken a turn and um, not taken a turn. We have been more encompassing with our psychedelics coverage, um, you know, certainly in our day to day's work, you know, day to work as, uh, you know, PR and IR folks. Um, we've kind of had a firsthand look at, at the growth of the market. And it is it is very different from cannabis, but it gets grouped into the same, um, you know, the same beat reporters. And, you know, so I just can you talk a little bit about your your uh, entree into the psychedelics market and, and how you're covering it? Yeah, um, it's kind of psychedelics. I'm replicating it the same way I did with cannabis, where um, where I started out with cannabis, I should say, where I'm in more of an eager person who wants to learn, who can write about things and explain it to people. So I would say, you know, um, I'm no expert on psychedelics finding means. I have a little bit of knowledge. Um, I want to learn more and I like learning about them and covering them. Um, but my, I would always say Benzinga has some great psychedelics coverage. Uh, Natan Poneman is the best writer we have on our team. Uh, check out his stuff, psychedelics, um, and a few others too. But, um, you know, when it comes to psychedelics, there's a need for having the stories be told and having that information gap filled. And, you know, as a writer who has an interest from personal experience, from my own readings, you know, from dipping my toe into it, um, you know, it's, it's something that I like covering. I like, as a change of pace from cannabis. Um, you know, I feel like I'm back in the early days of cannabis writing and kind of informing people and letting the experts dive into it on a deeper level. And then maybe one day I'll catch into the speed where I can kind of tap up more to the expert side of things. But, you know, I like filling in the void over here because there's so much information going on. Um, and, and like you said, you know, cannabis and psychedelics often get um, brought into the same discussion. And, you know, there definitely are a lot of parallels, uh, you know, legalization, the decriminalization, the, you know, the reversal of social stigmas against both of them there are there are a lot of parallels but i think the a lot investor of, base a oh lot yeah. of the investors are the same people absolutely yeah totally they're they are and you know i think one of the things though that i'm hearing from investors and i think this is the same thing with people following the federal side of things is that um psychedelics and cannabis aren't exactly the same um you know they might be seen as the same thing but more so f- uh but from my understanding of psychedelics is following a pharmaceutical route uh, in terms of approval, in terms of its industry, in terms of its regulations, whereas cannabis is going to be more kind of in a hybrid, you know, amphibious or uh, not amphibious, um, ambiguous sort of way. Um, amphibious could be fun, though. I know. Yeah, I, uh, it's, we're, we're turning people into frogs. That's what we <laughs> You know, the world, the world's short on conspiracy theories right now. So we might as well put one out there. Let's start one right now. Who knew? Who knew that psychedelics are turning people to frogs? <laughs> um, but no, yeah, it's, you know, it's this ambiguous thing where a lot of it is going to fall into the CPG, uh, CPG space. But, you know, there's also going to be, you know, food-based products, uh, edibles, beverages, um, topicals, you know, on the beauty side. So there's, it's, from what I've been told, it's going to be a lot more complex getting cannabis through. And, you know, it might be a lot more incremental than a sweeping bill where a lot of people are starting to believe that the psychedelic space could actually end up lapping cannabis in terms of regulations because of that more 
formal structure in the pharma space and in the medical space. So I'm excited to actually learn more about it. Um, if I get forced out of writing it because of a bunch of experts get into it, I'll be bummed, but I'll also understand and be excited to read their stuff because it's a really evolving space. And, you know, just psilocybin alone, there's so many varietals, just like uh, cannabis cultivars that, you know, factoring all the other psychedelic compounds that are out there, you know, it's just as much, if not a more immense world to cannabis. I'm just wondering when we're going to get the uh, Art of Psychedelics etiquette book from you. <laughs> I'm going to defer to Natan on that one. <laughs> <laughs> that or I'm just oh, gonna... Six weeks. Natan, are you listening? Yeah, six yeah, weeks. Six weeks. We need it. <laughs> don't, don't do it, my friend. Don't do it. <laughs> I think, I we think... should get Natan on. We work with him all the time. He's a good dude. Um, yeah, he's a really good dude. Yeah, he's, uh, he's uh, one of the good examples I like of Benzinga, too, is they use um, a lot of international writers as well as U.S. writers. So a lot of Benzinga cannabis and psychedelics are based in Argentina. So Natan is over there, and then I think he's going to be moving to Germany for a little bit to uh, oh, wow. expand his horizons. He's also an awesome filmmaker. Um, so, yeah, the Benzinga team has, like, a lot of talented people. He's just, like, one well, example of that. And it's interesting that Germany has turned out to be this like psychedelic biotech hub. So I, it's yeah. interesting that he's moving there. I mean, he's, he's, you know, going where all the action is. German efficiency, you know, you gotta, I guess you go <laughs> yeah. there and you know they're churning out what's going to be the next trending market, I guess. Uh, Andrew, you've been really generous with your time. We got one question for you. I'm, I'm really excited to ask it because, you know, for those who don't know, Andrew sends really funny, great expert sourcing emails when he's when he's writing his different his different articles and stuff, looking looking for people to talk with. But I'm wondering, is there a story in particular that you want to tell that you just haven't been able to, sit, to put out there yet? Or do you think what do you think is an untold story that you would like to be told about the cannabis industry? Hmm. Um, you know, wow. There, I mean, there are definitely a ton out there. Um, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it's interesting. Um, there's, I, it's kind of, I almost can think of again, like a log jam of so many different ideas. Cause you know, I think there's some really great stories about the, uh, the legacy cultivators that are kind of fallen by the wayside, forgotten history. And, you know, I think tell like for me, one of the things I love to do in my writing is doing a lot of profiles, whether it's states or individuals. And I think getting the stories of those legacy folks, you know, either that have, are still alive or passed away would be really great. Um, but I think also, you know, the business side, there's so much going on there on the regulations, um, I can't even, I can't even, can't, I can't even put a finger on which, uh, one I would want to talk about. Um, you know, um, like another one, I guess in terms of business that could also fit with the culture would be, you know, the state level stories. There's so many different state level stories. I'm trying to tap into local sources a lot of time, just because there's so many movements that you really can't get information from unless you're tapping in to the local articles. And sometimes those articles don't have a lot of reach. So it's telling those stories would be really important. Um, I do have another endeavor that I'm working on right now that might take me away from writing and maybe doing a different kind of storytelling that would allow me to do it. So, um, it's kind of in the early stages. Uh, so not sure if it's ready mm, or if it's ever going to come to fruition. Nice tease. Try it, try it. Yeah. You see, I'm, uh, I'm working better on this stuff, but, look um, at you. I, I actually had some gear that was right here in my camera shot because I thought we were going to be filming. So I took it down here, but I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, working on some new stuff and, uh, yeah, Trump might try to do some new mediums to expose it because, um, uh, not to ramble too much longer on this, but you know, the digital media space, be it cannabis or otherwise, it's really hard to turn a profit. So editors understandably are really hard to approve a lot of stories. So I want to be able to kind of go and tell those experimental stories in different sort of ways. So I'm kind of testing some ideas right now. So, uh, 
that was kind of a broad non-answer. I hope that's okay. Um, but hopefully no, that's TBD, a- I might be able to give you some good examples soon. Well, yeah, I want you to come back and, and talk about what you're doing because I think, you know, as, you know, people don't often think about PR people as storytellers, but we're always looking for the arc. We're always looking for a narrative. We're always looking for, um, you know, those anecdotes in the company, you know, the, the, uh, that personality that kind of brings a story to life. So, um, and you know, we're always looking at new ways to do that, be it, you know, with social media or, um, you know, all of the other tools that we have. But so I, I'd be super interested to see what, what you're working on there. But, um, it, but in the meantime, let's promote your book. It's called the art of marijuana etiquette, a sophisticated guide to the high life. Uh, tell us where it can be found and we'll make sure we put links into the show notes. Yeah. So, I mean, just like everything in the world, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, if you don't want to buy it on Amazon, you can go through the distributor, simonandschuster.com. Uh, just search the art of marijuana etiquette. Um, if you want to buy it from a non-Amazon source, uh, Simon and Schuster is definitely the way to go because they also have links to a couple other bookstores as well as some independent options. Um, you, yeah, you can go by there. Um, they also have cannabis jobs if you want to check that out. Um, the data is a little old, but the uh, information is still helpful. I love it. Andrew Ward, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you having me. A special thanks to Andrew Ward, freelance reporter covering the cannabis industry for Benzinga, Business Insider, High Times, and a number of other outlets, and also the author of the brand new book called The Art of Marijuana Etiquette, A Sophisticated Guide to the High Life. We'll have links to where you can purchase the book in the show notes, and make sure to follow him across all social platforms at The Canna Writer. As always, thanks for listening. If you want to chat with Ann or I, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at the underscore Green Rush, or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Shoot us an email at at greenrush at kcsa.com and make sure to sign up and subscribe to the green rush in your favorite podcatcher and to our newsletter that's one take shay one take <laughs>